I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to a couple of openings of Scripture. We've been using Genesis chapter 1 as kind of a um, golden text, if you will. So we'll start there, but then also turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. We have been teaching a series on uh, spiritual dominion for the last uh, number of weeks. I don't know how long we've been going now, but we've got another couple of weeks to go before we conclude the series. And uh, as I said, we've used Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 as our golden text, if you will. At the creation um, uh, of this present earth, this age, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the, upon the earth. So God created them in his image. Um, without question, without dispute. Now, I, I, I probably should qualify and make a couple of comments about this. Because it is without question. The Bible is so very clear on this that, that you have to just either not read it or not think to, to fail to recognize God created man to have dominion and authority on the earth. God created man to have dominion over all the earth. Well, we know that's not the way that it turned out. It's the way that it started. But when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, Satan became the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says that Satan is now the God of this world. That means that Satan took the authority that, had, that uh, God had given mankind through Adam and Eve. God didn't plan for Satan to have any authority here on the earth. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, uh, stipulations or instructions, that, the few instructions that God gave Adam and, uh, and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, dress and keep the garden. King James says, dress and keep. Literally, those words are garden protect. In other words, God knew that Satan was here. There's no way that he would not have warned Adam about an enemy present. When he told him to guard and protect, I'm sure Adam was smart enough to, to hear when God said, protect this place, he would have to ask, protect it from what? From who? What's, what's there to protect from? So he knew that there was an enemy here, had to. It would have been unjust for God to put him in, in uh, the midst of the earth where Satan had already fallen and not know that his enemy was here. So he knew. And as a result, Satan, the fallen being without any authority, became the rebel holder of authority on the earth. He became what the Bible refers to as the God of this world. Now, everything that Satan has authority over here on the earth was stolen from man. And Jesus came to restore man to that place of authority. Now, again, I guess I should qualify that. There was no sickness. There was no disease here on the earth. So it's not like man had authority over sickness and disease because it didn't exist. Sickness and disease only came into being after sin and death began to dominate the world. But Jesus came with authority over sickness and disease. And he transferred or or delegated that authority that he had over sickness and disease to his disciples that followed him here on the earth. And then later to the church when he was raised from the dead. Now, if if you found also Ephesians chapter 1, let's uh, point out some of the things that Paul prayed regarding the prayer that the Holy Spirit inspired him to pray for the church. He said in verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That means he's praying this all the time, doesn't it? Cease not means pray all the time. That the Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, another translation says the eyes of your spirit, being enlightened or opened. That you would know. And then he's going to talk about three things that he wants us to know. Please notice that Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost not to pray that the church would have something they don't have. But they would see what they do have. See the Bible says that we're complete in him. The Bible says that we're complete in Christ Jesus. Well if we're complete that means we've got everything that we need. Our prayers to God that he would give us something we don't have are wasted prayers. You've got everything that there is. The Bible says that you've been blessed already. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have everything within you, within your spirit, in contact with the creator of the universe that you will ever need. If we would come to realize that God meets our needs from within, it would serve us well. So much of the church is looking for God to do something from the outside. 
What's he going to do? Is he going to bring Jesus back to hang on the cross a little bit longer? To cover your situation or to cover mine? What's he going to do? Well, we just thought that God would just change the circumstances. The Bible says that you're supposed to change the circumstances through your faith. Well, we just thought God would take care of the devil for us. The Bible tells you to take care of the devil. Well, I don't know, Pastor Mike. We just thought God would do something. Which is where most Christians are. They don't have a clue. They're just looking for God to do something. Folks, God did something when he sent Jesus. So Paul prays that the church would have their spiritual eyes opened. That revelation would come. That we would know who we are in Christ. Notice what he said, that you would know what is the hope of his calling. Now, I believe that means a couple of things. I believe that means, number one, what God has done for us through Jesus, but specifically what God has called you as an individual to do in life. God's got a specific plan for you. It's different from his specific plan for me, but God wants us both to know what his plan is. Secondly, he said, he wants us to know through this revelation, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? In other words, what belongs to us because of Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead. Notice how he describes those. The riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints or in the saints. Doesn't sound like there's any shortage in that. None whatsoever. Thirdly, verse 19, and what is... The exceeding greatness of his power. Notice he's not praying that you'd have power. But that you'd know what the power is. That you would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power. To usward who believe. According to the working of his power. Now he's going to describe what power he's talking about. According to the working of his power. Which he wrought in Christ. When he raised him from the dead. And set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, I made, if you were with us last Sunday, you may recall that uh, in verse, um, verse 19, the description of power is used, um, Paul uses four different Greek words to describe the power of God. Four characteristics, different characteristics of power to identify the power that raised Jesus from the dead. The significance of that is very simply this. It's saying that when God raised Jesus from the dead, there was a greater display of power than any other thing that we have recorded in in, uh, Scripture. In other words, God used more power to raise Jesus from the dead than he used to create the universe. God used more power to raise Jesus from the dead, displayed more power. You know, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how all this works. I don't have all the answers. Um, but I'm pretty sure that God's not a waster. For example, if, uh, if, when Jesus ministered healing power, I don't think he ministered every, power, every uh, ounce of power or every measure of power that there was. He just used whatever power that was necessary to, to fix the problem or, uh, you know, solve the crisis. Wouldn't that make sense? Why would, I mean, God knows how much everything needs. I mean, God's all-powerful. He's all-knowing and so forth. So he would know what would be necessary for you, for me, for anybody in, in, in any uh, um, exhibition of power needed, right? But when it came to the display of, Je- of power that raised Jesus from the dead, God didn't use just enough. He used power, 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 power. Now the Bible says that Paul is praying by the Holy Ghost that we would come to the knowledge of that power in us. See, it's easy for us to think back to to the event of when Jesus was raised from the dead and however you picture that where the power of God comes back upon Jesus in the pit of hell and, and, uh, and, and however that worked. In your imagination, I'm not sure we all, any of us have the right picture, but uh, we've probably all got little pieces of it. But however that picture is to you, it was a lot more. Whatever picture or whatever imagination you've come up with in that, uh, that scenario, it was a lot more. God showed the greatness of his power. I'm not sure he held anything back in that situation because he wanted to make sure that he destroyed the bonds of sickness and disease. He destroyed the bonds of sin and death. He destroyed everything in such an extreme display that there was no question whatsoever. 
You remember the first Iraq war? Remember what it was called? Shock and awe. You remember what the intent was? The intent was to so overwhelm the enemy. Saddam Hussein's forces. So overwhelmed the enemy that there was no doubt about this thing. Folks, I'm quite sure that Ephesians 1.19 is talking about God's shock and awe operation against sin and death. Now notice what it's for to us who believe. To us who believe. In other words, it's saying the same power, 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 power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power, 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 power that's in you because of his resurrection. This was what he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21 tells you where heavenly places are. Far above. Everybody say far above. That means more than a little bit above. Right? Far above. Now, the, the, um, uh, the terminology that is used here is a little blind in the, in the uh, English language. We think of far as being, you know, either, it's, something's either near or something's either, something's either near or far. But that's not what these Greek words mean. Far above literally means it is so far above it shouldn't be compared. That's what these words mean. It means it is so beyond principalities, powers, minds, and dominion that they really aren't in the same class. They really shouldn't even be talked about or compared in the same sentence. That's what far above means. Far above all principality and might and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's where Jesus is. But don't just stop reading there. Keep going, verse 22. And when God raised him and seated him in his own right hand, he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Now, let me twist these words around a little bit to, to give greater meaning. At least it does to me. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head to the church over all things. The point is not that Jesus is the head over all things. The point is that Jesus is the head and the church is the body and have both been raised above all things or over all things. In other words, the all things would include everything that Satan took from from, uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden to become the God of this world. Every bit of authority, every bit of power, every bit of whatever the devil has here on this earth, Jesus stripped him of And then sat down at the right hand of the Father to be the head of the church. Yeah, but that's just Jesus. I'm so glad that Jesus has that authority. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 23, talking about the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. Paul did not write in chapter and verse. He's writing about the same thing. He said, and you hath he quickened. In other words, the same verb that he's talking about that raised Jesus from the dead in verse 20, is the verb that's talking about raising you or quickening you, making you alive just like he made Jesus alive. Paul is saying the same action of being made alive, the same action of being quickened, the same action of being raised up together with Christ took place at the same moment for you that it did for him. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Skip down to verse 6. The rest of it talks about what we were before we were saved and so forth. Verse 6, and has raised us up together with him and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, if we're seated together with Christ and the Bible says Christ is seated in a place of authority, where are you sitting? Now, certainly this is talking about position. I don't know about you, but physically I'm not at the right hand of God the Father. But positionally I am. I have the same position at the right hand of the Father that you do, that Jesus does. The only difference is Jesus is in heaven taking care of things from there. He left us here to take care of things here. But positionally, we have exactly the same place. 
because he's the head and we're the body. That doesn't mean we're equal on equal terms. He's got a higher place in the church in God's organization than we do. But we're still part of the same body. Now, it's real easy for the church to say, well, you know, Jesus can get along without me, but I can't get along without him. Not if, you're, if he's the head and you're the body. If you're the body of Christ here on the earth, how is Jesus going to get along without you? You're the one commissioned and left here on the earth to carry out his wishes. That's like saying, my, my head doesn't need my body, but my body needs my head. Well, let your head tell you to get up out of your chair and walk and your body refuse and see how well that works. They work together hand in hand, don't they? And from what I understand, paralysis is one of the most tormenting things to people that are in those conditions because their head is functioning, their head is telling their body what to do, but their body won't respond. Folks, I've got to tell you, that looks to me like the modern-day church. Where the head is giving instructions and the body's not responding. Now, those are two different cases. In the case of paralysis, there's some block, there's some condition that prevents the body from being able to respond. Spiritually, the church refuses to respond to the instructions of the head. But please notice that in the same way that God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised you from the dead. In the same way and at the same moment that he's raised Jesus up to be seated in heavenly places, far above all principality and power, he raised you up to be seated in heavenly places, far above all principality and power. If you've got a devil problem, it's your problem. Meaning it's you not taking authority or utilizing the authority that you have because you've been seated positionally in heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. But what does the church complain about? The devil. The church complains about its weakness. The church complains about how much trouble we have with the devil. The church complains about why God won't do what the Bible says he will do. When he left you here on the earth to carry out what he said he's already done. Now turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2. Or Colossians chapter 1. We'll start in chapter 1 and move into chapter 2. But if these things are true, I, I, guess the, I guess the bottom line is simply this. Does the church have authority that it doesn't use? I don't see how any clear-minded, rational-thinking person could conclude otherwise. But that the church has tremendous authority that the Bible speaks of that it doesn't utilize. That may be because it doesn't know that, it's, that they have it. Ignorance goes a long way to keeping you from being able to use something. You can have $20 in a secret pocket in your billfold and forget that you've got it and not use it. Think you're broke, have money all the time. I think that's the way the church is. The church thinks it's broke. When it has a lot more than it has, that it's aware that it has. But in other cases, I think people see these verses of scripture and just try to explain them away for some reason or another. Because of wrong teaching or experience or whatever the case is. Now if these things are true, then we ought to see the same things written to other churches that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, shouldn't we? Well, let's see. Paul, let's start in verse 9, chapter 1 of Colossians in verse 9. Paul said, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. That sounds familiar. What are you praying for the Colossians for, Paul? And to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Isn't that the same thing you said to the church at Ephesus, just using different terminology? The eyes of your spirit being enlightened. That God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's saying the same thing, isn't he? A little different way to phrase it, but it's the same thing. That you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, he's saying that you'd live out what you know that you have. Verse 11, strengthened with all might. He talked about the power to know the exceeding greatness of his power to the Ephesians. Here he's talking about strengthened with all might. Well, that's power, isn't it? According to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. 
Now, folks, every Christian is made able to partake of that inheritance. The riches of the glory of the inheritance, as Paul talked about to the Ephesians. Every Christian, every believer, everybody that makes Jesus the Lord of their life is made able to partake of that inheritance. Now, whether or not you do is the choice of the individual. But everybody can. See, here's one thing that I think has happened. We'll stumble upon somebody every now and then that, that uh, begins to operate in their authority. And the church looks at them like they are some special person. The church looks at them like they've got some special gift from God, that they have some special place of favor with God, that they have some special power that no, nobody else has, or something along that line. When the fact is they've just chosen to be a partaker of the inheritance. See, folks, spiritual laws work just as real as natural laws. And if you understand how to harness the laws of nature, you can utilize them. Electricity existed long before man ever discovered it. But once he's discovered it, once somebody, something happened to get somebody thinking along the lines of electricity, then he began to experiment. And he found through experimentation that there were certain laws that governed electricity. Well, would God make things like that work physically or naturally here on the earth and not be just as consistent when it comes to spiritual laws that'll last forever when the earth won't? See, spiritual laws are just as consistent, they're just as concise, they're just as orderly as natural laws. And if we find out the rules that govern those things, then we can operate them. Are you out there? Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, under all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us able to be partakers of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness. Notice these things have already been done. Who hath delivered us, past tense, hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath, past tense, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, what is the kingdom of his dear son? What is the kingdom of Jesus? Whatever it is has to include being seated at the right hand of God the Father, doesn't it? Whatever it is has to include the authority that he has because he is seated at the right hand of the Father far above all principality and power and might and dominion. We know that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, 18, appeared to the, the uh, disciples and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. So whatever the devil had, Jesus took the authority from him. The word power there is literally authority. He's not saying I have every ounce of ability in heaven and earth. He's saying I have authority over everything in heaven and earth. There are other powers out there. The devil does have power. But Jesus said that he had been given authority over all the devil's power and he transferred that to you. He immediately said, go therefore into the world. He said in Mark 16, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. And he talked about it. He talked about authority over sickness and disease. He talked about authority over the devil. He talked about divine protection and so forth. So whatever kingdom of his dear son is being referred to here has to include the authority that he, was get, that he gained when he was raised from the dead and delegated back to the church. Wouldn't it? Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. In whom we have, past tense, it's pres- I mean it's a current thing. It's already been done, so it's a present possession of ours. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of God, image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus, the firstborn of every creature. For by him, the firstborn doesn't mean Jesus was here on the earth first. It means he preceded any created being. Because he's eternal. He's part of the deity, the trinity, the Godhead. For by him were all things created. Jesus was the creating agent when God made the earth. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church. 
who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Notice he's got a greater place of importance, a greater place of priority because he was the first. He's the head. But that's the only distinction it makes between Jesus and you. I don't mind giving Jesus a preeminent position because of what he gained and what he, uh, what he conquered. Do you? But that's the only distinction that the Bible ever makes between you and him. You have the same authority. He gave it to you. He conquered it. He won it. He gave it to you. You have the same position. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So are you. You have the same commission. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. Even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. What's the difference? Folks, if there's a difference, it's in our thinking, not in reality. For it pleased the Father, verse 19, that in him should all fullness dwell. That means it's full to the brim. That means there's nothing lacking. What would we need from God that he hasn't already provided? Now, folks, I'm not saying these things to make somebody think that they're self-sufficient. I'm saying these things to, to cause us to realize that the Bible talks about the fact that all things have been delivered to us already. So it's a matter of taking hold of what's ours, not begging God to do something that hasn't yet been done. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, that would have to include the devil's authority, wouldn't it? Because isn't that what the devil took from Adam? Authority and dominion here on the earth? Isn't that what makes Satan the god of this world? You see where this is going. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Skip down with me to chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 8. Here's the conclusion of what Paul is saying. Just Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so were we. He said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. One translation says through philosophy and vain deceit. Instead of that, it says through religious teachings. Well, I think that one applies. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments or elements of the world and not after Christ. One translation says instead of rudiments, experience in the world. In other words, Paul, way back when, 2,000 years ago, recognized that the devil was trying to talk people out of who they were in Christ and what belonged to them. And he said, don't let anybody do that. The devil uses people through wrong teaching to try to keep you from taking hold of the place that you have in Christ. Keep you from walking in the authority that's been given to you already. Don't let that happen. Well, if that warning was good then, wouldn't it be good now? I mean, if men were supposed to listen to what Paul said back then, shouldn't we listen to what he says about that now? I would submit to you that's the greatest attack against the church. Teachings and doctrines of men that keep the church from standing and and operating in the place of authority that Jesus has already won for us. That's why the church is so weak, broken down, and has the appearance of being crippled. When all the time we've got the power that raised Jesus from the dead available to us and in us. So he said, don't let that happen. For in him, verse 9, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For in him, and you're in him, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, here's this word fullness or completeness. There's nothing missing. There's nothing lacking. Folks, that means that there's some area of the word that hasn't come to pass or come into reality for you and me. It's because one of two things is either because we haven't exercised our authority or because it's just a matter of our faith bringing it to pass. That's the only option. 
For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. That means he's far above it or over it, doesn't it? And you're complete in him. So if he's the head and he's above all principality and power, where are you? Above all principality and power. That means you are already seated above every work that the devil is trying to bring against you in your life. That means it simply becomes a matter of taking and exercising authority. Standing in and operating in authority. In whom you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism wherein you also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being, once you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he now quickened together with him, having forgotten, forgiven you all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's a lot of fancy King James English saying, you were dead and Jesus made you alive. You were buried with him in baptism. Now you're made alive with him through his resurrection. Verse 15, and having spoiled, because Jesus went to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. One translation says, in his resurrection. Triumphing over him in his resurrection. Now, the spoiling is a little different for us because we're not familiar with the culture that, of the day that this was written in. In Paul's day, there were kings of countries that would war against other kings and and, uh, the the victorious king would spoil the other king and his army. In other words, they would strip them of all of their possessions, everything everything that they owned, and including the boundaries or the territories of the lands in which they lived. So when it says Jesus spoiled principalities and powers, that literally means he stripped them of their authority. He took back... Not for himself. He doesn't need it. He's not here. But he took back everything that that, uh, Satan stole from Adam. He took back everything that makes the devil the God of this world for his body. Now Satan is still the God of this world in practice. But as far as the church is concerned. Jesus has delegated all authority that belongs to him. All authority over the devil, he's delegated that to the church so that we are not bound by the the God of this world that's operating against the unsaved. So it says he spoiled principalities and powers. The way that kings would spoil other kings is they would parade them down through their capital cities. Well, what's God's capital city? Heaven. But is heaven just a place? Is it just a location? Or is heaven about eternity? One uh, minister friend of mine says, Jesus stripped principalities and powers of all of their authority and paraded the devil through downtown eternity. I like that. In other words, he made an open show. He made a show of the devil. He stripped the devil openly before earth and heaven. Well, then why don't we know about it? I mean, the Bible gives no wiggle room here, folks. The Bible is really, really clear about saying that we have all authority over the devil. And now that doesn't mean the devil will obey you instantly. It doesn't mean that you can change things on, a, on the, you know, in a moment's notice. It doesn't mean that. Things still take time. It doesn't mean instant change. I, I, the first thing I heard about authority, I thought, oh, man, I can change things overnight. Well, overnight came and went. And then I was faced with the same thing that we're all faced with. Okay, what does this mean? Does this mean the word's not true? Or does it mean I haven't gotten a hold of it yet? Or does it mean there's more to it than I know? Well, I accepted the word was true. And so I stuck with that. And so the things that I wanted to happen overnight, some of them took a lot longer, but they still happened. They still worked. The authority was still exercised and the result was still gained. I think a lot of Christians, when they hear this message, they want authority for themselves selfishly so that they can run things the way they want them to be. I did. Might as well be honest about it. I did. I wanted to have more authority than the guy next door. 
I wanted to be able to run things the way I wanted them to go. Well, that's not the way it works. But I can't have authority in my life over anything the devil's trying to do to disrupt God's plan for me. Can you see that? This is the message that really got me going. I was uh, saved when I was uh, six years old and uh, spent almost, no, well, about uh, 18 years, 17, 18 years, somewhere around there, as what I would consider or what I would call today a nominal Christian. I loved God, prayed, talked with him. I was always aware, since I got saved at a young age, I was always aware of God with me. I talked to him. He talked back to me. I didn't know that was supposed to be weird by the estimation of other nominal Christians. I thought everybody heard from God. I spoke to him. He spoke to me. I didn't get, there's no religious formality of prayer or anything like that. I talked to him like he was my friend, and he answered me like he was my friend. And so I, I just thought that was the way it's supposed to be. And, and folks, it is. That is the way it was supposed to be. I just hadn't learned yet that that's not the way that it works for everybody because of their, well, wrong teaching, whatever the case is. I had plenty of people try to talk me out of that as we win. But anyway, I spent 17 years or so going through the motions. The older I got, the more I was affected by my friends and peer pressure and stuff like that. And so I got into a lot of things I shouldn't have gotten into. I still avoided a lot of things that I'm glad that I did. But I still, you know, I got into involved in things that, that Christians shouldn't be involved in. And when I decided that I'd had enough, when I decided that they were paying those people in beer commercials to smile... And they are. When I, when I tried all the stuff that I thought was going to make me happy and it didn't. Then I decided, you know, I'm not happy with this. I'm not satisfied with this. Not only am I not happy by the things that I'm doing that everybody says will make you happy. You just join them in doing it. But now I'm dissatisfied inside too. There's still a longing on the inside because now I know I'm not right with God. So I'm not happy outside from the stuff I'm doing. And I'm not happy inside because of breaking fellowship with God. My heart's condemning me. So I just tried to cut things off. Well, I didn't know how. The, the church I grew up in, the, the denominational church I grew up in, was wonderful at telling you what you shouldn't do. I mean, they had a lock on that. But they didn't know how to tell you. Or they didn't have the information on telling you how to do it. I would agree with them that we need to live a, 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 a holy and moral life. But how? Where's the power for that? That's what I struggled with. I struggled with it. And, and it was part of that struggle that got me into some of the wrong things that I got into. And it was the difficulty that I was having leaving those things off once I made the decision from the inside that I didn't want to live like that anymore. I still found myself doing a lot of things that I said I'm not going to do anymore. And I started getting a hold of a little bit of information. My mom got filled with the Holy Ghost. And so I became acquainted with Brother Hagen. I got his, uh, I think the first book of his I got was the book Redeemed. Redeemed from the curse of the law, redeemed from sickness, uh, poverty, uh, sickness and death, I guess is the title of it. And I went, to, that was the only book I had. And I went through that book over and over and over again. I mean, I wore that thing out. And I, I looked, at the, looked at every scripture. I looked at it in my Bible and my Bible read just like his did. And, uh, and, and I was shocked to find some of the scriptures that he pointed out because you know, I had gone through daily Bible reading plans in Sunday school and stuff like that to earn points, to win a prize and all that kind of stuff. And I'd never, I'd read over some of those same chapters that he referred to and never seen those scriptures. And so my eyes really started being open to some things, but I still had a lot of that stuff hanging on to my flesh. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just snap your fingers and do away with the problems of the flesh overnight? Well, that's not the way it worked for me. So there was a lot of things hanging on, but I, there was a, an opportunity that I had to go to a meeting that Brother Hagen had. I was living in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was going to be in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd never, I'd heard about Brother Hagen. I've read his book, but I, at that point in time, I'd never heard him on tape. But the, that one book made it seem to me like it was him and Jesus on the top of the pile and everybody else is way down below somewhere else, you know. Just hearing, reading the stories and, and stuff like that. So I heard about this and had a chance to go up there and and uh, on somebody else's dime. That's the only way I could make it. And uh, so, uh, so I decided to go. Well, during this um, uh, four-day meeting, I guess it was, that he was holding in Nashville, it, uh, it was a real cold snap came through, unseasonal type thing, and it, and it snowed. 
And, uh, and so the, the attendance was terrible. People didn't come out and didn't attend the meeting, but we'd come from out of town and was staying right there next to the convention center or the meeting place. And so all we had to do was walk, you know, almost next door and, and go to the meeting. So it was a real, real small crowd, probably many more people than what was here today in this uh, auditorium. And it was a place that would see several thousand people. So it, it looked like the place was empty. And Brother Hagin taught on the authority of the believer. And man, that changed my life. And the thing that got it, I, the thing that really got me, I was hanging on to every word, but the thing that really got me was when he told a story about Brother Haynes. He said that when he was still pastoring, so it had to be before 1950, probably 1948, 1949, somewhere around there, he was still pastoring, pastoring the last church that he pastored. He had a Sunday school superintendent that was um, uh, called uh, Haynes. His last name was Haynes. Brother Haynes said, this guy was great. He said it was the first time that he ever really had a superintendent Sunday school superintendent that would that would call people and go visit them and do what needed to be done to to help boost attendance and stuff like that. Everybody else just had the title, and in years past and and didn't really do anything with it. Well, Brother Haynes worked in the oil fields, and um, uh, something happened. I'm not sure what the circumstances were, but something happened to where Brother Haynes fell down from a tower into the the pumping equipment, and by the time he got the call, the word was that Brother Haynes was dead. So he got there, and there were a bunch of people standing around, a bunch of the workers and so forth. His wife had, had just gotten there, and the doctor was uh, kneeling over where Brother Haynes was. So he went straight to uh, Brother Haynes on the ground, and they had him, you know, kind of covered up a little bit, and that type of thing. And so he knelt down next to the doctor, and, uh, uh, and Brother Hagin said that he thought that he was dead. He looked dead. So he said to, said to the doctor, he said, is he dead? And the doctor said, no, he's not. He said, I thought he was. But he's still hanging on, but he, he can't make it. He said, so I need you, first and foremost, I need you to go comfort Sister Haynes. The doctor was familiar with the church and, and so forth and, and uh, wasn't a member there, but, you know, a small town, everybody knew each other. So he said, I need you to go talk to his wife, Mrs. Haynes. So Brother Hagin walked over to where Mrs. Haynes was, and she spoke up before he could say anything. She spoke up and she said, the doctor doesn't think Daddy's going to live, does he? He said, no, he doesn't. She said, isn't it good that you and I have got inside information? <laughs> now, folks, I've got to tell you, I think a lot of the things that happened from that point of time happened because of her position. Had that not been the position, they might not have gotten some of the results they got. So anyway, he said, yes, we do. He knew she was talking about inside information, in, information from inside the Bible. So he said, we'll agree and we'll hang on to it. So they agreed. 30 minutes went by, 45 minutes went by. The doctor's still expecting him to die any second, but he hung on. And so the doctor said, I, I, don't, I can't explain it. I don't know why he's still alive. But he told Brother Hagin. Uh, Brother Hagin said, I think he knew that I had something to do with hanging on to him. He said, so here's what we're going to do. He said, I've done everything I can do for him out here in the field. He said, the nearest hospital is in Tyler, Texas, 30, 35 miles away, whatever it was. He said, we're going to put him in an ambulance and tell the ambulance driver to drive as fast as he can to get there. I'll do whatever I can to stabilize him and get him ready to go. He said, I'm afraid if we move him, he's going to kill him, but he keeps hanging on. So you ride in the ambulance with him, and we'll just get somebody there ahead of you and get the doctors waiting on you and the hospital ready to, to receive you, and you guys just get there as fast as possible. So that's what they did. Got to the hospital. The doctors worked on him. Once they got to the hospital, when he got there, his blood pressure was zero. After working on him for 45 minutes or so, they got his blood pressure up to 40. And, um, uh, and for the next three days and nights, Brother Hagin stayed there. Or the, three, the nights, he would stay there. He'd go back and forth to the home and change and shower and stuff like that during the day. But, but for the next three nights, he stayed there with uh, Brother Haynes. He was in a coma. The doctors couldn't explain what was going on. The doctor finally told him, he said, we don't know the extent of his injuries. Because we're afraid to even take him down to the x-ray. So we know that he's got a collapsed lung, but we don't know what extent the, the injuries he has are. And so anything that we do, any movement we make could kill him. So we're afraid to do anything with him. So they, were, they had him uh, in a private room, and they had a, a nurse designated to stay with him 24 hours a day. They would revolve the shifts and, and uh, have somebody there 24 hours a day. And Brother Hagin said the third night, he's been there three nights, sitting up with him all three nights. He said the third night he started falling asleep. He said as he fell asleep, the nurse came around the bed and brushed against him 
going to check on him, and it he, he startled him, and he kind of woke up, and he looked, and he said he thought that, the, that Brother Haynes had died. And so he asked, he said, is he dead? And she said, well, I thought he was, but he's not. She said, Brother Hagin, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but he'll never make it till the morning. So Brother Hagin got up out of the chair where he was sitting and had napped in the room, walked out into the hallway, quiet, dead at night, nobody's moving around, 2 o'clock in the morning, something like that, you know. So he goes out in the hallway, and he said, and he said later, he said, I don't know what made me say it. He said, I must have been led by the Holy Ghost or something. He said, I don't know, but... He said, I just said, Lord, I'm not going to let him die. And then he said this. He said, first of all, he's 49 years of age. You promised us 70 or 80 years of life as a minimum. That was what Moses was complaining about, that people were dying at 70 and 80 years of age. He said he'd satisfy you with long life and show you his salvation. So if you're not satisfied with 70 or 80, then go on for however many you want. But, he, but 70 or 80 is a minimum. So he said, he's only 49 years of age. He's too young to die. He said, secondly, he said, he's my Sunday school superintendent. He said, I need him. I'm the under shepherd. You're the chief shepherd. If what I need, you need, and I need him. He's the first one I've ever had that really did the job. I need him. And thirdly, death's an enemy. It's the last enemy. Physical death is the last enemy that will be put underfoot. But he said, death is an enemy. So I just rebuke this death and command him to live and not die. Well... He said, I didn't feel anything. Heaven didn't open. There's no earthquake. So he said, I went back into the room, sat down in that chair. He said, after about 30 or 40 minutes, I fell off to sleep again. I woke up, and the nurse was rustling around the bed. He looked dead again. He asked again, is he dead? She said, no, but he's right at the point of death. So he got up out of the chair, went out into the hall, and did the same thing the second time. Third time, he went back into the room. Some little time later, he started sleep, falling off to sleep again. See, for whatever you think this means, he said, every time I fell off to sleep, I started losing it. See, something that, folks, there's something about exercising spiritual force. You can't do that when you're asleep. So the third time he went out and said the same thing, exactly the same thing. I'm not going to let him die. Well, the next morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, something like that, the doctor showed up, came in, checked him, and got, was startled, just absolutely startled. He said, Looked at Brother Hagin with a shocked look and said, well, he's come out of it. I don't understand it, but he's been in shock all these three days. We haven't been able to get him out of shock. And that was what was making us to, you know, believe that he wouldn't make it, could go at any, any moment. He said, but he's come out of it. We don't know what's going on, but he, he's come out of it. Nurse, let's get him down to x-ray. Let's find out what the problem is. He looked back to Brother Hagin and said, he might make it now. Brother Hagin said something on the inside of him was doing handstands. He's thinking, might make it nothing. We got him now. So they did the x-rays. They found out what was wrong with him, what internal injuries he's had and so forth. One of the things that was wrong with him was he had shattered his elbow. Uh, the x-ray showed that his elbow was in, shattered into like a thousand pieces. And the doctors told him later, he said, you know, we knew you'd never have the use of that elbow again. And we didn't know if you'd want it straight or if you'd want it bent. So we just put it in a bent position, figured you could use your shoulder and move it around some way or another. So anyway, we put it in a, in a uh, bent position like this, wrapped it up so that it would uh, it, it will stiffen up. You won't be able to move it in any way whatsoever. But we figured you'd be, be happier with it like that than, than anything else. Well, after he was healed, he could move his elbow all around. He said that the oil company that he worked for paid him $2,500 for the loss of the use of that elbow. And him standing there saying, well, I can use it. See, I can do this. But the x-ray, years later, the x-ray still showed that his, his elbow was in, uh, uh, just shattered in a thousand pieces. Well, that's not healing. That's a continuous miracle. He even had a, had a conflict. He said, well, Brother Hagin, should I take the $2,500? And they said, you know, the, the explanation was I can use the elbow. I haven't lost the use of it, so I'd be taking the money under false pretenses. Their response was, yeah, but we go by the doctor's report. Doctor's report says you'll never use your elbow again. So Brother Hagin said, well, they're going by the report. Everybody's doing their job. Just take the money and thank God. <laughs> and pay your tithe. <laughs> so here was the, this was part of the story that, uh, that things really got interesting and really grabbed hold of me. Brother Hagin said that after uh, some time, you know, there was still a recuperating process. He didn't walk out of the hospital overnight or anything like that. He said there was a recovery time. So some weeks later, when he got back to church, 
he stood up and, and uh, talked to the church and wanted to thank everybody for praying for him. He said, you know, the, your prayers really mean a lot to me. I appreciate everybody that did everything that they did for my wife and, and so forth. And then he said this. He said, uh, he said uh, don't ever feel sorry for somebody that dies that's saved. He said, I have no knowledge of, of uh, the last thing I remember is falling. He said, I have no knowledge of hitting the equipment. I have no knowledge of any, anything that happened from that point in time. He said, I, I just simply woke up in the, in the hospital when it was all done. And he said this. He said, but apparently, while I was in the hospital, I died. He said, because I, I, I went to heaven. And he said, I saw Jesus. I heard the choir of angels singing. Oh, what a beautiful sound. Nothing like you've ever heard in your life. He said, I saw things that, that could only be heaven. And Jesus started walking up to me. And he said, I was just about to fall down at his feet and tell him how much I love him. And he said, and Jesus said, you'll have to go back. And he said, but Lord, I don't want to go back. He said, now loved ones that go to heaven that, that are saved. Well, you can't go to heaven unless you're saved. But you know what I mean. Loved ones that are saved, don't feel sorry for them. They wouldn't come back if they could. He said, you don't want to come back. It's so wonderful. He said, you don't think about anything that you left. You don't even think about the people you left behind. You just look forward to them joining you there. Don't worry about people that have gone on in the Lord. So he said, I was just about to fall down and tell him how much I loved him. And he said, you'll have to go back. He said, but Lord, I don't want to go back. He said, he said the second time, but you'll have to go back. He said, Brother Haynes said the, th- the second time, but Lord, I don't want to go back. And then the third time, Jesus said, but you'll have to go back. You'll have to go back to the earth. And then he said, uh, Brother Haynes said the third time, he said, but I don't want to go back. And he said, well, you'll have to. He said, Brother Hagin won't let you come. <laughs> and Brother Haynes said that, that when Jesus said that, he said it was like he reached around behind him and pulled back a, a sheer curtain. And he could hear Brother Hagin's words say, Lord, I'm not going to let him go. Now, Brother Hagin hadn't told that to another living soul. He was in, Brother Haynes was in a coma when Brother Hagin said that under his breath, whispering out in the hallway. He said, if you'd been, able, if you'd been standing right beside me, you wouldn't have heard me say it. You, you might have been able to tell I was whispering, but you wouldn't have known what I said. He said, that had to be from the Lord. That had to be something that happened, a spiritual experience that happened. He said, because nobody knew. And he said, Brother, the Lord told him, Brother Hagin won't let you come. He said, the next thing I knew, Brother Hagin said, the next thing I knew, I woke up in the hospital. That'll get your juices flowing, won't it? That's what turned things around for me. That's what gave me the determination that I was going to push through and let those things of the earth and things of the flesh fall off of me. Because that's how much authority means to me. There's a place, and and I know exactly what's happening on the inside of you if you're paying attention. If you care about the things of God and if you're paying attention, I know exactly what happens to you when you hear that story. That's what happened to me. Because God created you to have dominion. God created you to have dominion. And so there's something on the inside of man that cries out for that restored dominion that he lost in the Garden of Eden. Jesus restored that. Jesus gave that back to us. Jesus gave that back to us. That's made authority one of the, the, the chief subjects of mine to study. Uh, about 20 years ago, there was a situation with uh, a fellow that uh, was, I say in the church, they would come semi-regularly, I guess. They, it wasn't like they ever came real regularly. But it was a real different, um, different type of situation because, uh, um, well, the guy thought that he was something that he wasn't spiritually as far as ministry was concerned. And, um, and there, were, there were things that, that he had done. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that they were in ignorance. I don't know. But there were things that he had done that, uh, to, to hurt the church, to hurt us when we were starting off. You know, if the devil's going to kill something, killing it when it's young is the easiest way you don't believe that go try to pull up a tree that's just been planted and a tree that's been growing out there for a couple of years you can pull up a tree that was just planted because it hadn't taken root well that's when the devil tries to kill things before they take root that's why the devil comes to steal the word that's planted in your heart 
He tries to take it before it takes root. Once it takes root, he's got a fight on his hands. So anyway, this guy had done some things, um, a couple of different things to, to hurt the church. And I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you didn't know. I, I don't know. But there were uh, a couple of times through a, a, maybe a year's time that, that he would want to go to lunch with me. And I, I went a couple of times. And, and one time he, he implied, he didn't come right out and say it, but but he was basically saying that the only reason our church was making it was because he took a step back and, uh, and let me pastor. Well, in case anybody else is thinking that, let me clear that up. This church will make it, has made it, and will make it because it was born of the Spirit of God. That's it. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't have to, it's not because I know God better than anybody else. It's not because I'm a better teacher than anybody else. It's not because of me in any way whatsoever. As a matter of fact, my number one, well, my number two job, number one job is to feed people the truth of the word. Number two job is to stay out of the way. Don't mess things up. We'll always be the church that can't die as long as we stay on the, the track that God gave us to be on. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. If something's born out of the flesh, it doesn't matter what you do. It's never really going to go and have the results that it would have had had it been inspired by the Spirit of God. The reverse of that, the, the, the flip side of that, is that if something is born of the Spirit of God and stays on track, there's nothing you can do to undo it. So that's why our church is here. That's why our church will stay here. So there were some things, you know, that were, well, it was spiritual pride. Might as well just call it what it is. It was just spiritual pride. And bless his heart. Um, I, I felt bad for him. I prayed for him on on many occasions. And it was just one of those things he wouldn't let go of. Well, um, he had been diagnosed with uh, uh, some kind of sickness or disease. And I got a call one day a couple of years later that um, uh, that he had taken a turn for the worst. And they were calling for me to come to the hospital. And before I went to the hospital, I talked to the Lord about it. And I said, no, and I knew exactly I had a witness in my heart all the time that they were saying they were believing God over it, that they didn't have it. I can't tell you how I knew that. It's, uh, it wasn't something the Lord spoke to me. I just had a witness. Many times you can tell. Many times you can tell even though somebody is saying the same thing. You've got two people. One is saying the same thing that the other one is. One's really got a hold of it from their heart and the other one doesn't. The other one's just saying the words. So I, anyway, that was a witness I had. So it wasn't a surprise to me to, to get the call. So I just said to the Lord, I thought about this situation with Brother Haynes and a couple other situations that I had knowledge of and um, about authority, spiritual authority. And so I just said this. I said, Lord, bring him out of this. Now, he's done me wrong. He's done this church wrong. He's worked against us. So I know this has got to be motivated by the love of God, not by my flesh. So I'm not going to let him go right now. Bring him out of this and let him leave a good testimony with his family. Well, 30 minutes later, I got another call saying that he's come out of it. So they don't need me anymore. My first thought was, well, that did a lot of good, huh? Here's that same spiritual pride coming back. It never left, never went anywhere. It's like, okay, crisis is passed. We don't need you. Well, for the next several days, I think it was four or five days, for the next several days, boy, everybody was talking about what great faith they had and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking all the time, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. About the fifth day, he died. And it was a bigger mess than it, than it would have been if I had ever left it alone. So I talked to the Lord about it afterwards. Now, folks, I want you to get something here. I didn't ask the Lord about it. I didn't talk to him about it. I just exercised authority, and it worked. I remember one case where Brother Hagin was talking about with his father-in-law, and this was one of the reasons that I did this. He was talking about with his father-in-law that happened several years after the situation with Brother Haynes. He's standing at his father-in-law's bed. He's 70 years of age. It's time for him to go, or it's, it's at least the time is legitimate for him to go. And he's standing there, and he just says to himself, he's by himself in the, the hospital room, and he says to himself, Lord, I, th I believe I'll just rebuke this death and command it to leave, command him to live and not die. And he said instantly the Lord spoke to him and said, don't do it. There'll never be a better time for him to go than now. Well, the fact that the Lord said don't do it means he could have. 
Otherwise, the Lord would have said, it won't work. It's my will for him to go. Right? Well, that's what I didn't do. I just exercised authority. And it turned out to be a mess. It wasn't a help to the family. It wasn't a blessing to anybody. It just turned out to be a real mess, a real confusing mess. So I talked to the Lord afterwards, and I said, Lord, I was trying to do the right thing. And he spoke back to me, and he said, I honored it. I honored the exercise of your authority because you were operating out of the love of God. But if you had talked to me ahead of time, I would have shown you why that wouldn't have been the best thing to work. I would have shown you what you could have done instead. And I realized I missed a great opportunity to be a blessing to the family and maybe bring people back together. Folks, the church has authority it doesn't use. The church has authority it doesn't use. It has a lot of authority that's never even thought of where the exercise of it is concerned. How big a deal do you think it was for Jesus to raise the dead as opposed to healing the sick? Any difference for him? Same power. Same display of power. Same operation. But if we're going to use authority and exercise authority effectively, we're going to have to be mature. We're going to have to recognize that even though we may have authority to operate in certain situations, we need to get the plan and the purpose of God in mind. The Bible says God raised Jesus to his right hand far above all principality and power and might and dominion and gave him to be the head to the church over all things all things include death I'm using that as an example just because if we've got authority there where wouldn't we have authority not that that's the only place to use it or even the most important place to use it in my case it was not but Jesus was given authority over all things and he delivered that authority to this church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the work that was done by Jesus, our Lord and Savior, to strip Satan of his power and his authority and to restore man to back to the place of dominion. That God created for Adam. Father, open our eyes. I pray Paul's prayer, given by the Holy Ghost. Open our eyes to see who we are in Christ, what belongs to us, and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Father, the hour is late and much time has passed. It is time now for the church to stand. To operate in the place that we've been raised. To operate from the position of the right hand of the Father. Not recklessly, not on our own, as I did and found out but according to the plan and the purpose of the Heavenly Father. Father, there are people in this room that the devil has ravaged. There are members of our church that love you and love your word, that are standing on your word, that the enemy has operated against with sickness and disease and even tragedy. Right now together, Father, as the pastor of this church family, And as a family gathered together, we exercise our authority over the enemy. Satan, we take authority over you and command you to cease in your operations. Cancer, be gone in Jesus' name. We rebuke that cancer. We command it to leave her body in the mighty name of Jesus. We refuse to give you any place We refuse to give place to sickness. Arthritis, be gone in the name of Jesus. 
Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the name, your wonderful name, given by the Father in heaven. The name that's above every name. The name that's above everything in the earth. The name that's above everything in heaven. Both now and for ages to come. Father, I thank you that the power of God works. It's not just a theory, but that it works effectively because we believe. Because we believe. Thank you, Father, for the life of God that's within each one of us. Thank you for that healing power that works from within, not from without. That works from within to drive out sickness and disease. That power of God that works from within to make a way where it looks like there may not, may be no way. Oh, Father, thank you for authority. In the precious name of Jesus.